Hello, and welcome to Fashion History with American Duchess. I am one of your co-hosts, Lauren. And, and I'm Abby! <laughs> our other co-host, Abby. Enthusiastic this afternoon. Uh, today, we have a, a very special presentation by mm-hmm. Abby, talking about one of her primary areas of research, of which you are, are incredibly knowledgeable, and that is 18th century hair care and dressing. Yes. Yes. For women, mostly. For for women. um, How it was done, with with what tools Mm. it was done, um, interesting things about hygiene, and how it differs from today. All sorts of nerdiness. All sorts of nerdiness, (laughs) and we're actually going to do a two-part podcast Mm -hmm. here about this, because there's so much to cover. Yes. Um, So we're going to start off with a little bit of background from you, Mm -hmm. Abby. How did you Mm -hmm. get into this? How long have you been researching it? <laughs> Tell us what led you down this, <laughs> this, this rabbit, rabbit hole, hole of, of hair. Of hair. Um, Hairy rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> you knew uh, it was coming. Yeah, I did. I was waiting for it. Um, so I never thought that I would ever be interested in hairdressing from a researcher scholarly perspective. I was always really interested mostly in, in dressmaking and, and things like that. But at my old job, uh, when I worked at Colonial Williamsburg, we were doing a special program about trying to bring a fashion print um, to full tableau, to life. And as I'm sure all of our listeners know, and you know, being the shoe lady, hair and shoes are like the biggest thorns in in costuming sides. Like, <laughs> it doesn't matter what time period it is. Hardest to get right, yeah. It's the hardest thing to get right because we just don't have those, that knowledge, those, the equipment, the actual shoes until American Dutchess came along to do it, right? So, so we were doing this program and I just kind of took it upon myself to really try and figure out how to do the hair correctly to not rely on a wig, to to make it look as much like the print as possible. And, and why did you think that these ladies in the print weren't wearing wigs? Um, well, that's a very long <laughs> explanation, but to summarize, and we can go into it a little bit later. You didn't make the assumption like we all do. No. They must have been wearing well, wigs. Well, I mean, like in the image themselves, there's no distinct line of for a wig. It is a natural hairline. Um, and also, it, it's one of those things where I think because everyone relies on wigs to to create their look, that it was like, well, let's let's actually go there. Let's see if it is actually possible to do it without a wig, um, because it's a it's a it's an easy way out in a lot of ways to do a wig. Let's see if it's actually possible with human hair with what you have available. And was it really as common as we modernly yeah. think it was? Yeah, yeah. Which oh, that's a that's a long, <laughs> a long, long, long explanation. But to finish the question, um, I think now, I think I've been into it for three to four years now. I've given um, two lectures with costume, no, one lecture with Costume Society of America, another lecture that I don't actually remember where it was. Oh, oh yeah, no, it. so I did CSA, I did yeah. Costume Society of America, and then I went to Canada last year, and I presented about hair there, too. You've also done it at Costume College. Yes, and I've done it at Costume College, Because I was too. there, and I was astounded. <laughs> um, and you so, yeah. kind of lived this, I did. Um, yeah, so I went super hardcore. And once you started to kind of figure out what was going on, well, what's yeah. going on, I kind of got 
I started making the products and and obviously since my job was to wear 18th century clothes every day it was one of those things where it's like well I'm never going to have a chance to really experiment with this and do some hardcore you know reverse archaeology research than this moment so I think I spent about a year or so really focusing on just pomading and powdering my hair. So practicing the things mm-hmm. that you were discovering. The 18th century hair yeah, care practices. Full disclosure, whenever I would work out at the gym and get super sweaty or I was visiting my grandmother, I would always wash my hair because I did not want her to complain at me because she <laughs> totally would. Um, so I wasn't 100%. I was probably like 88%. But you, you got the, the mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. of the who, what, when, where, why, and how. Yeah, and so, how it worked. And did it actually keep my hair clean and... And you're going to go into more detail yeah, about that. Yeah, and I can say I never got lice and I never got fleas. We'll come back to that <laughs> at the end. Uh, so for a little background before we mm-hmm. get into the tools and the methods here, yeah. um, when was powder kind of and, and pomade becoming mm-hmm. a thing and about how long did this last? Um, so the combination of hair powder and pomade, I, I will say to give full disclosure that my really focus of studies has been almost truly the last quarter of the 18th century. I wouldn't even feel comfortable saying the last half. I've been going into the last, to say like 1750, um, just very recently. Um, And that was honestly because of our book. Uh, But my expertise is really kind of founded into the last quarter of the the 18th century. However, with that being said, um, it's really interesting because when it comes to publication and information, I'm, I'm finding information, you know, in like the late 1760s, 1770s being published in English about powder and pomade. But when you look at portraiture, you don't see that white, heavily powdered aesthetic with Anglo and American women. It's kind of um, more of a French thing. You see it with French women, but you don't see it with Anglo and American women. However, with French Honestly, when you look at like the early 1700s, when they have, like we're talking like Mantua, and they have the little like fontages and they have the little like horn hair, you know, like that hair is powdered. Um, so I think for France, it was happening a lot longer than it was with, with English and American communities. With that being said, I'm not willing to say that women at that English and American women were not putting some powder in their hair, but I don't think it was a heavy application if it was. The way that it was maybe for a different purpose than it was for Mm -hmm. the French fashionable. Yeah, it it was more about going into it from a hygienic perspective, but I don't don't know. I'm not 100% sure. So let's kind of get into Mm -hmm. this because there, there may be some listeners who are a little confused what the heck are you guys even talking about so let's start from the beginning (laughs) of uh, the tools that and methods so Mm -hmm. what are the basic tools and products used for dressing Mm -hmm. women's hair in the 18th century century. um you cannot have 18th century hair without two two products two major two major products pillars here the first is powder which is what everyone i think associates with the 18th century is the white hair powder which gives us those heinous <laughs> white wigs from ah, costume shops oh, in there <laughs> oh nightmare so bad um so they were not wearing white 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 wigs in the 18th century please don't no, do that no please don't and especially if it's shiny no shininess 
shiny in 18th century is 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 the big that that's that's no um so you have hair powder hair powder the main ingredient for hair powder is starch um it's going to be wheat starch in the 18th century um that's what they had readily available darn i was hoping we could all be mrs potato head no darn i, I will say <laughs> i will say um wheat starch is almost impossible to find today and the wheat starch that I have been able to get my hands on, I do not think it is of a high enough quality to be considered good enough by 18th century standards. I have experimented with tapioca starch, potato starch, corn starch, and they all actually have a very similar color and texture to them. And so quite truthfully, for ease of access, um, for like costumers and reenactors today, I don't actually see a problem using another starch don't use flour okay that is problematic um because i just have not been terribly pleased with the quality of hair powder that i've been able to achieve with quote unquote wheat starch i don't actually think it's for starch i think it might just be a super fine flour that they're calling a starch and it's not so it's primarily starches Mm -hmm. um not flour no what else um you see yes um because we we talked about this the recipe i always used was from the toilette de flora and it was called common powder and it had cuttlefish bone and beef bone ground up beef bone in it cuttlefish bone grounds up really nice and fine into a very fine powder um and then i could never really get my hands on like high quality ground up beef bone. So I actually ended up omitting that from my recipe after a while because it just didn't serve a purpose. But also orris root, ground up orris root, which is the uh, root of the iris plant. And it has a very soft yellow tone to it and it can grind up very fine and it has a very faint floral scent to it as well. So that helps kind of scent the powder very naturally and lightly while also softening a kind of harshish white that you might get from a starch. Um, So you see that, that's the common one that I would use, the kind of basic. They all have starch in them. How they're scented or dyed or colored kind of depends on what what kind of hair powder you're going for. So the recipes I've seen for colored hair powder, like black or brown, they actually have um, oil paint pigment, dried pigment, so like burnt umber. That was a disaster. <laughs> you don't put that on pomaded hair because you get paint. <laughs> you put that on pre-powdered hair. <laughs> um, like dried ink. Um, you take uh, rouge and the the longwood and sandalwood to make rouge, uh, carmine, um, or or you just take carmine and you can mix that with the powder. To get pink that To way? get pink. Um, you see blue as well. Oh um, you see flaxen and orange. I've seen a reference to orange um, and things That's like interesting. that too. Yeah. I've, I've read that red hair was not popular in yeah. the 18th century. I actually was just looking at some of my research and I came across a reference to red hair. And it's and this kind of goes back to how they view um, hair and when it comes to health and humors and a kind of really old medicine is that apparently red hair was associated with really ill health and so to have like dark brown hair or or blonde hair 
or things like that, it was more it was considered to be more beautiful and more healthy. Um, so it's not that gingers don't have souls. <laughs> it was that, um, it was that whole concept. It was more about the actual health and, and vitality of the individual. I wonder where that came from. That's yeah. so interesting. So we've got powder, mm-hmm. and then it always is paired with pomade or pomadum. Pomadum. Um, if you're speaking English, pomadum is the correct term. I just get really lazy, and I've just gotten into the habit of saying pomade. Yeah. So I say pomade. It's the, it's the French uh, word for it, um, mostly because I'm lazy, and I don't want to add the extra syllable. Um, but pomadum is the, is the Anglo word, and that is an animal fat-based hair product. Goo. Goo. Um, it does not, if it's made correctly, it does not smell like animal. It does not stink unless you think the smell of flowers and cookies stink. And close. <laughs> and close. Um, people always just assume that if it's made out of animal fat, it stinks. Well, ivory soap is made out of tallow today. It doesn't stink. Um, it's how you process the animal fat, um, whether or not it smells. So it's going to be rendered first. So it's going to be melted down, boiled, and then that rendered fat and like all the impurities and, and basically if there's any sort of actual muscle protein associated with it, that's going to sink to the bottom. You scoop off the good fat at the top, just like when you're making bacon, and you put it then and you let it dry. And then you and, feed it to your dogs. Yeah. <laughs> or you use it to make eggs. Um, no. You, you allow the, the fat to harden and then you're going to rinse it. And when you look at recipe books like Toilet to Floor, they actually have a very specific way that you rinse the fat. Um, and you do not break that timeline. That timeline is there for a reason. I learned that the hard way. Um, and you rinse the fat in fresh water and you change the water out at least every day. And it's going to rinse for probably two weeks or so. Oh, wow. Um, what this does is this actually pulls the gamey scent out of the fat and I actually learned from my best friend growing up who is an avid huntress that that's actually how her family preps deer meat is they'll you know they'll butcher the deer but then they rinse the meat in fresh water in the refrigerator for for a few days and that actually pulls the gamey flavor out of the meat as well so it's the same kind of concept interesting so we're talking about like sheep fat, chicken mm-hmm. fat. Yeah, so I've seen fat. pig's lard is the most common. Okay. Um, I my recipe that I really like to use involves pig's fat and mutton fat, so sheep sheep tallow. Um, I've seen recipes with chicken. I've seen recipes with beef as well. Um, I've seen recipes that also include like hemp seed oil. Um, but pig's fat is the most common, and I liked the mutton tallow with the pig's fat because I found that lard after it's been rendered down it gets really goopy and the sheep's tallow has a much more harder consistency it's more crumbly as a fat and so by mixing them together you get more of a pasty kind of pomatum versus a goopy jelly so that, pomatum. kind of like today's pomade mm-hmm. you go to the story of or, or waxes you get mm-hmm. different hardnesses for yeah different and different things and so it's it's a personal preference about what you like um, you're also going to add beeswax to it, and when you add beeswax to what they call common pomatum, that actually then becomes hard pomatum, because logic, and that's 
creates a much harder um, consistency and it's better for high heat conditions. So they always recommended that you take it with you if you go to the East or the West Indies. Um, it's also used to help frizz the hair um, when you're doing the very large frizzy hairstyles from like the 1780s and early 90s. Um, and it's it you rub it directly like onto the hair because um, oh, okay. the so it's like beeswax block, kind of. yeah it makes it into a a roll or like a stick or something Interesting. like that. Mm-hmm. And you so. scent it too with with flowers if you want, or what I would like is the clove oil and lemon essence. That's because that's easier to do than sitting there and buying like pounds, pounds, and pounds of flowers, yeah. petals, and then you sitting can put there. Some essential oils. Yeah, in, I just, in both the I'm pomade and the powder. Yeah, the essential oils and the powder is a little bit more tricky because they're um, wet. Yeah, because they're <laughs> wet. But uh, putting a lot of uh, scented essences and essential oils into the pomade is is what I like yeah. to do. So this kind and of that's reminds what I, the recipes me of I followed. Use like soap making or candle making mm-hmm. today. Just it's, it's not safer. like totally alien uh, process to Mm-mm. us as twenty first century no. people. No. Um, so we've got pomade, we've got powder. Mm-hmm. Um, and then combs you, and brushes yeah. or pins or yeah so you have combs uh, there are rat tail combs in the 18th century i actually really wish that someone would reproduce them today because the tail on the end of, the, of what we call rat tail combs is actually uh, conical it's not flat it's actually round and so that's one of the ways that you can actually curl the hair and then slide it off to do like a heat curl or, or a pin curl so you can have it actually on the comb. And if you go and look at rat tail combs today, they're all flat. And it's like, this is not helpful. <laughs> but 18th century ones, they were actually conical. So you could you could physically wrap the hair around the tail of the comb and then slide it down. So that way you could do even curls. They have teasing combs and they have wide tooth combs. They have all sorts of arrangement of assortment of different combs available. When it comes to brushes, you very rarely ever find a reference to women brushing their hair. It's always combing your hair. Um, from personal experience, this is because you do not want to brush your hair when it is powdered and pomaded. It, it does not work. It doesn't go well. Oh. Okay. Unless, unless you're really wanting to look like you have a massive dandruff issue. <laughs> it does not go well. So it's always combing the hair. Um, and I think that also might tie into scalp massage as well and stimulating the scalp and helping pull the, any sort of powder or pomade that might have settled onto your scalp away from your scalp and through your hair. Let me tell you, when you start to get an itchy scalp because powder has settled, there's nothing better than taking a comb and going to town on your hair. Oh, it feels so good. (laughs) Um, And then hairpins. This is probably the hardest part with this research, is hairpins and figuring out what they looked like, what sizes they were, how and how they were utilized. Um, There is a collection of hairpins that actually survive in the Nordiska Museet in, Sco- in Stockholm, uh, Sweden, and it's part of the Anders Birch collection. He was a professor at University of Uppsala, and he collected everything because um, he like knew, and Swedes are really good about this, that you should keep everything so that way people later on can research it later. I tried to look at the hair pins, but they're so delicate now and fragile that they can't actually be viewed in person. So they're on the digital... Um, collection online you can look at but I could never see them in person and the ones that he saved were all sorts of different sizes like we have ones that are several inches long really short and what's interesting is they're just wire but they're sharp on the ends 
And this, I think, is so that way you can easily pin your hair cushion and rollers, which we'll talk about in the other episode, to your scalp. Hmm. Um, you can pin through the hair product um, versus today, you know, when you look at hairpins and bobby pins today, they almost always have a rubber coating on them. Um, and then there's the whole issue of what kind of pins were they using to do like the side buckles or side curls for women at that point in time. Um, and this kind of deals with my own hangups and issues with it um, when it comes to my hair not liking hairpins that are the U-shape. My hair spits them out. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. It's yeah. impossible. Um, even, it doesn't matter how much pomade and powder I put in my hair. It, my hair is like, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so I'm wondering how often these women in hairdressers would manipulate the wires to, to, to go from U-shaped to, to bringing them together so they almost look like a bobby pin, but they don't have the crimping. So it's more like what we would call a roller pin today. Um, if they would manipulate the hairpin wires to suit their purposes better, to, to, to deal with different hair textures. Um, so yeah, and then you have the cushions and the rollers, but that kind of goes more into styles and how styles changed and what their shapes were and, and things like that so and we will talk about that's a, that's the next episode cushions grubs rats <laughs> mythology <laughs> later uh, so pomade powder <laughs> cushions rats mythology uh hairpins all this how, and combs and combs how were these things how is how is the hairdress how is this applied mm-hmm. to the hair how do mm-hmm. we get from you know what clean and straight to an 18th century hairstyle okay um, so the first thing you're going to do is you're, especially if you're a lady of any sort of means, you're going to want to make sure that you have a very skilled hairdresser taking care of you. Um, this might be your ladies' mates because you often see advertisements of women looking for ladies' mates who are milliners, mantua makers, seamstresses, fine laundresses, hairdressers, what have you, can also play a jig on, you know, the banjo or whatever (laughs) and oh by the way do it all blindfolded and juggle at the same time (laughs) um sounds like a craigslist ad today yeah so you might have a ladies maid who's very skilled at it or you might actually pay a hairdresser to come in as a profession um the skilled hairdresser more than likely is going to first trim your hair um they really encourage you to regularly cut and trim your hair to prevent split ends and to get rid of the the gross scraggliness at the ends of it um, so women's hair was not all just one length. It was actually cut differently depending on the different styles. And it was encouraged to be trimmed on a regular basis. So you're going to trim your hair if you're doing this from like, you know, super fresh. And then you're going to comb your hair so that way there's no tangles in it whatsoever. And if your hair, it, I think this might just depend on the hairdresser and how, how they're feeling that day or what technique they like to use. They might put pomade in the hair. Um, and comb it at the same time because usually you're going to comb your hair when you pomade it anyways and you're going to give it a nice even treatment of pomade onto the hair um, the amount of pomade that goes onto the hair just depends on your hair texture so for someone like me who has really fine thin hair I don't need a lot before I start looking like a wet dog I just need very little I can go really fast um, I've dressed other people's hair where it just soaks it up and it doesn't change the texture. So like, you know, I can use on like a little one ounce tin, just a couple thumb scrapes of it. And then my hair is, 
is ready to go. Where I've actually gone through almost an entire tin of pom pomade that I made on someone's hair because it was long, thick, and dry. And the hair was like, oh, this is great. Just keep giving me more. <laughs> and I was like, I need to ah! move on. Like, I've been doing this for forever. Um, so it depends. I The amount of pomade I like to use is about... I say towel dried, so you don't want a dripping wet like you just got out of the shower. You want to get out of the shower, wrap your hair in a towel, let it sit there for a few minutes, then take it out, uh, and then maybe like comb so it out a little that, bit. That's how it should look. We're yeah, not, you're not actually getting your hair wet. No, 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 no. This is just what the pomade. You're working looks the pomade like. through your hair, and you're going to mm -hmm. sort of look like your hair is damp. Yeah, damp okay. hair. That's the effect. And then once the pomade is applied and combed through, then that's when you apply the powder. The powder can be applied a few different ways. Um, you there's nuances when it comes to powder application but for the ease and quickness of hair coverage versus finishing the look um a powder machine has always been the highest recommended one that's obviously the one that's not impossible for most of us it's today like, like a little bellows little bellows it's so cute yes so small. um because it, it gets it on there really quickly and effectively um swans down powder puffs um silk powder puffs as well um, that's what I use a lot, especially for finishing. And then I have found some visual references to what seemingly looks like powdered sugar shakers uh, being used to powder the wig. And and that's what I like to use since I usually am dressing my hair myself. That's the quickest and most efficient way for me to get the powder onto my hair for this initial like, gotta pomade it, gotta powder it before I can even start dressing it. So the hair is, is it's down, it's long, it's looking wet. Mm -hmm. You've put, you put powder over all of it. You work mm -hmm. the powder through everything, everything instead of just not just on the it's outside, all of it. um, at the end. Yeah, no, it's you all that of it. too, but yeah. first you need to powder all yeah. of your hair. It's like yeah. working a styling lotion through it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's, it's exactly like that. So today, you know, you might put styling lotion or mousse or gel or something like that into your hair before you blow dry it. It's the same idea before you can even dress your hair in the 18th century, you've got to powder and pomade it. Now, obviously for modern people, it's a bigger pain in the backside than it is for an 18th century person because their hair has already been powdered and pomaded for so long that it's combing the hair, trimming the hair, and there's adding some more. So and it's a much- And the hair is used to it. And the hair is used to it. It's a much more efficient, quicker process. And if you miss a spot, it's not gonna be as noticeable either. So, so you do that, and then that's when you start dressing your hair. And that's when the cushions and rollers and, and braids and curls and all that come in. And then once it's all set, and you might have to use some hard pomade to help tease and get the hair up to where you want it. You might have to apply a little bit more pomade if the hair has had too much powder applied to it and it's a little fly away to help control it. And so you just keep going through until your hair is dressed and then you apply the finishing, especially if it's trendy. If it's not trendy, you don't. But if it's trendy, that's when you apply the finishing layer of hair powder to complete the look. Um, and then yeah, you're ready to go. So how do these things change the hair texture? Because when I've seen mm -hmm. you do this, mm -hmm. I, I, and I've uh, tried to do it myself. I've been amazed by how like sculpty the yeah. hair gets. Oh, and I why love does it. that happen? I love why, it. How? It's the best thing yeah. for fine, fine hair. Oh my God. For fine haired girls like us, it is magic. <laughs> um, I, I'm not sure because I'm not a chemist, but my limited baking knowledge. <laughs> um, and if there's someone who is, who is into chemistry and knows chemistry and you can actually explain to me from a very scientific point of view about how this works, that'd be great. Um, but what from I can understand is the starch, when it is applied to the pomade, it's applied to moisture. And so the starch in the hair powder will absorb the excess moisture of the pomade. 
And the, my belief is that then the particles within the starch, they expand, right? And that expansion mixed with the kind of tackiness that will come with the texture of the starch mixed with the animal fat and the hold that animal fat can give to hair when you're when you're fixing it and curling it, that's what makes the hair, it, it, it makes your hair probably three times as thick than what it is. So if you're like us and you have really fine, thin hair that's slippery, when you add powder and pomade to your hair, it's like you've entered into a Pantene Pro-V commercial. <laughs> it, it, seriously, it's like a shampoo commercial because you're like, look at my hair, it's amazing. And then for girls who have really thick hair, it just becomes this mane. Giant. It's like, just huge and giant. Um, it's awesome. So this is really interesting. And it makes it sculptural. It, it reminds me so much of 20th century hair setting and styling mm -hmm. uh, methods and practices where you would set your hair or, or you would go to the salon and have your hair set in pink yeah. curls and rollers and then you, you would have that set for like the next Week three or four seven, yeah. days um and then you you know you'd start over again and mm -hmm. you put product in there and all mm -hmm. of that and you have all this texture and it's mm -hmm. sculptural so it's, it's interesting that this ties in it's really not all that different but it no. is extremely different yeah. with how we deal with our hair today yeah well we had like the 1970s long straight thin flat hair and then we had you know the 1990s where again the flat iron, which is the bane of every fine hair <laughs> girl's existence. Every time a hairdresser gets near me with a flat iron, I'm like, go away. <laughs> um, remember the crimpers. Oh, yes. But um, we yeah. seem to have lost, even from our grandmother's generation mm -hmm. to this, we have lost these hairdressing techniques well, uh, I think that are beginning to come back through yeah. research. And you're all the way back in the 18th century. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think it kind of ties into our ideas and changing viewpoints of hygiene. Um, and cleanliness and so you know for so long it was about having clean shiny long hair in the 20th late 20th century and that usually re and we had the invention of shampoo well obviously when a company invents shampoo as a product they're gonna market it yeah. they're gonna market it and saying you need it to be clean you're not clean otherwise and so all of a sudden you had this demand that you have to wash your hair or you're dirty um, but we had the same thing happening in the 18th century with pomade and powder didn't we well in newspaper ads yeah it's how they viewed hygiene um so it's that change of hygiene and view of hygiene um because obviously in the early 1800s in the regency period in the 1830s and you know 1840s and all that they weren't putting powder in their hair it was old-fashioned they were still using the same pomades but they were not powdering their hair and we see pomade use Mm -hmm. All the way up through the fifties for well, the to, today. Today, the difference is today it's made out of dead dinosaurs. <laughs> um, so a lot of uh, pomades and stuff today that you buy, and why I don't recommend people use them to recreate eighteenth century um, hairstyles, is because they're often petroleum based. Mm. So not only is that really awful for the environment, but you're literally putting petroleum in your hair. It just doesn't quite work it's, the same. No. Yeah. It's so, kind of gross, in my opinion. We've got our hair up in these these styles where mm -hmm. they're pomaded, they're powdered. Mm -hmm. You get home at the end of the day, long day at the millinery shop, right? Mm -hmm. What do you do? Do you take a shower and wash your hair? How do you deal no. with this? Um, it's combing. It, it, in every hairdressing manual that I've read, because that's how I like to, I think I've said this already, but that's how I like to do my research. I like to read how the 18th century people viewed hair care. I don't want to put my opinion on it because I don't know anything. I'm a 21st century woman. 
my mores, social values, hygienic practices, they don't matter in the 18th century. And I have no business judging them. I want to know what they thought about it. So by reading all these hairdressing manuals, the thing that I see time and time and time and time again is you have to comb your hair to keep it healthy. Comb the hair to make sure that you don't get, you know, scabs and scales and hair loss and itchy scalp and scalp diseases and, and things like that. By combing the hair, you're, you're helping keep everything nice and clean. So ideally, I think if you were a very hygienic 18th century woman, you would come home and you would actually take your hair out, which I know shocks people because they just assume that you wear the ha same hairstyle for like a week on done. Um, take it out and comb it and then put it up into a nightcap and then dress it again the next day. A lot of these hairstyles are not actually that complicated. They look much more complicated than they are, but a lot of that is just illusion created by artificial hair pieces. So fake hair curler, curls, extensions, things like that. Um, and they're actually really easy to kind of put back up because it's like pin curling your hair for a vintage look. Your hair learns how it's supposed to go and it will behave itself over yeah, time. Usually the second or third mm -hmm. day of a it's like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. Yeah. The hair knows what it's supposed to yeah, do. Yeah, it's learned its lesson. Um, the way I would deal with it when I was trying to really be good about dressing my hair um, is that I would actually leave things sectioned off the way I had them when I dressed my hair. So the braid or chignon in the back, I would keep that in kind of a ponytail. If I had side curls, which I almost always did, those were so heavily teased and frizzed and pomaded and powdered um, that I, I didn't want to even try combing them out until I was done. So I would just kind of like take the curl out and then flip them up and like pin them to my scalp to, out of the way and also so that way they wouldn't mix with the back hair or the hair that went over my roller um, or cushion in the front and then I would pin that separately too and then by putting your hair wrapping it in say a headscarf or putting a nightcap on that would help keep the hair powder and everything off of your face and your hair off your face to help keep your face clear um, and also help keep your hair neat and tidy too um, I will say I didn't think I don't actually think I was very good about 18th century hygienic practices. I was not very good about combing my hair. Um, Gosh, filthy. I know, dirty girl. <laughs> so, but but what's missing from all this is mm -hmm. that you did not wash mm -mm. your hair no. with water. What happened? I love this. What happened? <laughs> Lauren's already asked me this question. If you all haven't figured this out, she I've likes also, the answer. I've also uh, fallen into this trap. Yeah. <laughs> what happens when you wash pomaded and powdered hair in the shower? Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to answer this with a question. What happens when you make breakfast on Sunday morning and you decide to fry up a ton of delicious bacon mm. and make pancakes and then you try to wash your dishes and you don't have any dish soap? Chaos. Chaos ensues. Bacon it's, it's chaos. Awful. There's grease everywhere. There's you just, you dough everywhere. You can't cut through You can't clean it. Grease. Water can't cut it through the grease. Worse. Yeah, it just makes it a big mess. So oh. you have to 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 get the pomade and powder out of your hair, which even today using modern shampoos um, and learning tricks that my mom has taught me from her um, her studies on, on a completely different subject that has nothing to do with 18th century hairdressing. Um, it's really hard to get pomade and powder out of your hair unless you wash your hair like two or three times with modern shampoos. So imagine now you're an 18th century woman 
and you've decided for whatever reason you need to wash your hair. I don't really know, unless it's a medical reason recommended by your physician or you're trying to dye your hair, I don't really know why you'd be trying to wash your hair um, because that's not associated with cleanliness at this point in time. You then are just using the soap that you have available and it just becomes a big, tangly, greasy mess, oh, right? Oh, God. It's just, oh. it's just not practical. It's not practical. And as someone who... Pomming and powdered her hair as an experiment. When my hair started to sm- to stink, like when I could kind of smell it, and I was like, "Ooh, I'm smelling a bit humany." Uh, that's what I say. When you apply a new layer of pomade and powder, it actually c- gets rid of the smell, and the hair smells clean. It smells fresh. It feels fresh. It absorbs all the excess oils coming from your scalp, and so that is actually how you can clean your hair is by applying more pomade and powder. And, and combing it through. And combing so it's, it through. It's the application and the combing mm-hmm. that, that is the hair. 18th century mm-hmm. cleaning of the mm-hmm. hair. It is not taking a shower or a bath no. and washing it in water or no. swimming in the ocean or No. Like well, that. since you brought that up, um, one of the hairdressing manuals I like to read is by um, a man named David Ritchie, and it was published in 1770, and it's called Treaties of the Hair. That's almost what all of them are called. And he actually addresses the issue of getting your hair wet directly. He does not recommend it for salt water. End of discussion. He no, only beachy no. waves for you. No, that was, <laughs> thank you, Mary Kate and Ashley Olson. That was not a trend in the 18th century. Um, <laughs> loved in the early 2000s though. Um, I could never achieve beach waves. No, I still damn it. <laughs> um, as much as I try. He only says the exception to that is if it's recommended for medicinal purposes by a physician. And that that was true in the 19th century, too, mm-hmm. or earlier 19th century. I don't blame them. The they ocean's gross. See. It's nice to look at. I don't want to go in there. And sharks. Sharks and a <laughs> lot of fish poo. <laughs> and a lot of waste. Um, for fresh water, he says it doesn't affect the... Because the issue with salt water is how it affects the scalp and the hair and the hair health. Um... Fresh water, he says it doesn't affect it in a negative way, but he still doesn't terribly recommend it. But if you do get your hair wet um, when you go bathing in fresh water, make sure that you comb it out immediately and you need to get it dry before you can fix it. And that's kind of the issue is that you don't, you cannot dress your hair if it's damp, just like today. And so then he recommends combing the hair and then adding powder to it to absorb the moisture as quickly as possible and combing and combing and combing and combing. combing. Yeah. Now you're on with wet hair. In, in England or France in the 18th century, it's probably not a no, it's a terrible good idea. idea. So, I mean, that's just it too. So, if even if you're like, oh, I need to wash my hair, which is a completely modern mindset, if you're in England, you can maybe wash it from May to August. Maybe. If it's a dry season and it's warm. You, you do not want to wash hair that is down to your butt in the middle of November in, in England. Definitely not in Scotland. It was damp there. It's not going to dry. It's never going to get dry. It's going to be damp. And you actually have a chance then of catching a cold. And in the 18th century, they actually, it's part of the like longer history of medical studies and medicinal studies. Um, And there's actually a really great PhD thesis about this subject from the University of Warwick by a woman named Emma Markowitz, and I can put the link up in the blog for this, because you all, everyone can read it, it's free on the internet, but she did her PhD on the concept of hair and wigs as a commodity, and the more how people in the long 18th century viewed hair in general, 
And so she actually addresses the whole concept that hair in the 18th century, especially in the early 18th century, but it even goes up into the late 18th century, um, could be viewed as a, it was viewed as essentially a open organ that this is how you could um, get diseases and get sick and and you needed to be careful with that. Um, so this is especially like way earlier, so this kind of ties into the whole concept of wig wearing. Um, that hair was porous and it was alive and it had juices and humors and all these graphic words. Hair juice. <laughs> hair juice. So the pomade and the powder are almost like a barrier. Like, I, to... I, yeah, you could actually think, I never thought about that like that. Yeah, you could totally could. Um, but if your hair is wet and exposed, you're more exposed to getting sick then. So it's just not a good idea. Yeah. I mean, as so, someone who lived in Tidewater, Virginia, uh, dunking your head in cold water was probably one of the few ways to deal with the summer heat. But, but, but yeah. no. But not for you. No. Not unless I wanted to make cake. So you mentioned wigs, um, and this ties in with, with Tidewater, Virginia, and heat and vermin mm-hmm. and all of this. Um, let's talk about wigs. So, okay. So. <laughs> My favorite subject. Did I'm women, so excited. No. <laughs> there, there's, there's a common idea that mm-hmm. women shaved their heads and, and yes. wore full wigs. Uh, but what you're saying is that they they didn't, mm-hmm. or they did in only certain circumstances? Or yeah. Let's, let's elaborate on that a little okay, bit. Okay, so let's back up, and I'm going to re-bring up the, the PhD that I read. Um, what was interesting about that PhD is that she talks about wigs, like I said, from a commodity perspective, not from a fashion perspective. A lot of research on wig wearing and wig use in the 18th century has always been tightly associated with the concept of fashionability, that it was a trend that people wore to be fashionable, right? Her perspective was different, and I really, really enjoyed her arguments, and she and I also were totally on the same wavelength when it comes to hair. Um, But her perspective was about men, it was how men wore wigs and how how they were used and viewed in the in the male part of society and she says it right off the bat in her phd as well that women commonly did not wear wigs i think what has happened is throughout the study of history one the when you look at satirical images and portraiture of, of women in the from about 1774 to about 1790 92 93 Hairs can get really big. It's different styles and different shapes, but it can get really big, especially like circa 74, 75. That's when it's super tall. Um, and people go, that's not possible. That's crazy. The only way they could have done that is if they wore a wig. No, if you have really long hair and a little bit of a sculptural uh, tools, you can actually do a lot. So I, and then knowing that people wore wigs or men wore wigs, I think it just kind of, they started to group women into that as well as a, as a social practice for the 18th century when it should have just, there should be a gender divide here um, when it comes to that. So, so men shaving their heads and wearing wigs. Yeah, that was a common practice. We see it in portraiture. We see it in imagery. Totally normal. When you look at portraiture of women at this point in time, you do not see a hard wig line. You see a natural hairline. Um, and when you look at images of women when they are using wigs, and it's really obvious, isn't it's it? It's yeah. super obvious because the wig is almost never on the woman's head. It's either being put on, on a, on like a, a torn off, yeah, torn <laughs> off, or 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 it's sitting like on her toilet table, right? If you look at the women and how they're being portrayed, what I've noticed in my research is it's usually for one of a few reasons. It's either because they're old, 
And so they've lost their hair because of age. It is because they are sick. Um, so sickly women. Or it's... It kind of gets really... This can get a little uncomfortable, but it. I think it also has a lot to do with sexuality and cleanliness and venereal disease. So um, prostitution... Potentially. Yeah. Potentially. I don't, I don't want to say prostitutes wear wigs. I, I don't think that's correct. Um, but there's definitely a connection and imagery of of women who are wearing wigs are, are usually portrayed as being sick, dirty, um, old, things like that. So a hygienic issue, a health issue, an age issue. Interesting. Um, now, of course, you do see some women who are those supposed to be like young and they're wearing wigs and they're, they're super vain, but they also never seem to have a lot of hair <laughs> either when they're wearing them. And I mean, like, and it was common practice that if you got really sick, you might cut your hair. So, again, it goes back to illness. So, not necessarily venereal disease, but just illness in general. How um, about people um, selling their hair? Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's going into the, the commodity of hair as a right. product. And that's what I um, thought as soon as you said yeah. commodity is, do we have the lower classes selling their hair for, I, for survival? I, I have not revisited. I again recommend reading Emma's uh, PhD because she actually talks about the hair trade. Interesting. As in, like, the physical product of hair. I think a lot of it was coming from Eastern Europe at this point uh, in time. And horses, apparently, for men's perukes, were using horse yeah, hair. Yeah, you see other you see other hairs being used, but that that is, is that's not my. That's a whole other that's a kettle whole of hair. Yeah, that's so, a whole different well, thing. What altogether. about vermin? I mean, mm-hmm. the what I've heard is oh fleas and ticks and, and they had rats in and, their hair. They and, had fleas. They had yeah. ticks. It was so gross. Nastiness. So. How does that tie in with what you're telling us about how the hair was dressed and okay. I mean, truly this affected everybody? Well, I want everyone to think about this real fast. You're in London, right? Yay! Yay! You've been invited to court. You're going to be introduced to the king and queen. And you meet Queen Charlotte. Freaking queen of England, right? She powders and pomades her hair, but she is every inch a classy lady. Like, she is the pinnacle mother, the queen. She and George have this beautiful relationship. She is classy and well-behaved. She is not going out partying every night. She's not crazy. She's not lewd. She is just royalty-defined, right? Now try to imagine her with with bugs and, and mice in her hair. Do you actually think that was even a possibility for some woman so classy and refined to... To allow herself to be inundated with Infested. vermin, but you you could make the argument, oh well, she had people to brush through. Oh, oh, they she had. You got two or, hands. Or everybody, everybody was affected by no. fleas and by no. all of this. Because it's dirty. It's not hygienic. But it's tied to the products, isn't it? Yeah. Of why why this is a myth? No. It well, it, it I think it ties into the idea that we as a society think we are better than our elders. This is a common thing. It'll happen to us 200 years from now when, you know, our great-great-grandchildren have their invisible, like, screens that just, like, pull out of thin air and they're like, our grandparents were so dumb. They had iPhones. Losers. <laughs> and we'll also be shorter than them as well because that's a normal <laughs> thing, too. Um, I think it has to do with how we view our society and our culture and our hygienic habits. And since their practices are not as quote-unquote good as ours and we are quote-unquote superior they obviously had to be dirty right or they didn't know what they were doing or they didn't know what they were doing 
So, no. Okay, let me back up. Was there lice? Was there fleas? Obviously. Would everybody have them? No. <laughs> you know, again, it goes back to the whole, when you look at imagery, when you look at imagery of, of women wearing wigs at this point in time, it, like I said, it's associated with, with age, hygiene, illness. Hygiene. Hygiene, right? So, so people really cared about hair. Hair was also associated with women about beauty, elegance, health, vitality. It was a beauty point for women, just like it is today. Um, and then one of the things that, well, there's also the whole issue that lice are not actually attracted to, to dirty hair. Um, it's clean hair, which is also why I don't think I ever got lice as a child because I hated washing my hair as a kid. <laughs> um, but it's, it's also the fact, and I don't think a lot of people realize this, but when you look at recipes of pomade and powder, mostly pomade, at this point in time in the 18th century, you look at the ingredients involved. Now go and look at natural flea and tick repellent for your dog and cats today. There's going to be a lot of ingredients that are exactly the same. Clove oil. Clove oil is a natural flea and tick repellent. It is used today. And like I said, that's one of my favorite scents to use in hair pomade. Now, did they know that clove oil deterred fleas and bugs and things like that. I haven't found any evidence I to prove that point. I, I haven't think it's found a any natural, yeah, but almost prehistoric knowledge because when you look at the mm, way that animals, yeah, uh, will will go and roll in or lay in pine and cedar yeah. and you know spicy things like yeah, that yeah. because they deter pests. But that's animal instinct versus scientific understanding in the 18th century because I've looked through like housekeeping books where they have how to deter bugs from your home what to do they don't ever mention clove oil which is interesting because uh, I went specifically looking for a 18th century reference that says use clove oil to deter bugs I haven't found it yet I think it's out there it I might just be haven't found much it yet. further back in time and have just been one of those general knowledge things but it could be we'll, but we'll, then we just we'll don't know them. yeah eventually <laughs> but so, so yeah clove oil is a natural uh, flea and tick repellent so if you have it in your pomade well, there you go yeah yeah and as so long as you're keeping your hair you're combing your hair and you're taking care of your hair they don't because if you get sick and you get bugs or you get scabs or any sort of disease in your hair, it, it's going to damage your hair and they're worried that it won't grow back or or you're not going to have as thick or as beautiful hair as you used to. Now this so. doesn't mean that nobody ever had lice in No, and that's what I said. It's like people did, yeah, but it's not common. There's an extraordinary number of You don't want it just like you don't want it today. And collections, yeah. but well this is it too is that combs could be so fine that if you even did have lice you could comb them out. So, and I'm sure there's, I think, oh yeah, no, I know I've seen washes to get rid of them too, to like get rid of lice if you have it. Yeah, so again, so the, the washing your hair for medicinal purposes that too. That vermin didn't exist on people's heads. It's that they, You didn't want them just like today. <laughs> yeah, and they, they took steps to, mm -hmm. through their hair care mm -hmm. and their hygiene to to deter these things. Um <laughs> There was a very loud motorcycle that just drove by, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the the greater point here is that, like you touched on earlier, that big big uh, reveal here. Our ancestors actually were they were smart. <laughs> they knew what they were doing. They knew what they were doing. <laughs> they were clean. Yes. Um, it's it is a misconception that that people in the past were filthy. Mm -hmm. 
um, it's it's very centric to our own time of we do things in a certain way therefore if if mm-hmm. people don't do them in a certain way they must have been wrong it, yeah. that's almost ethnocentric today yeah. because there's other parts of the world that have, have different, different hygienic practices that doesn't mean less hygienic it no. just means that it's different yeah and i think that's important for us as as costumers reenactors and living historians and scholars and academics i think the biggest challenge for us is when we go into the past is trying to take away our modern filter is this like a, a camera filter right you gotta see the past through their eyes as best as you can if you cannot get yourself into that mindset you've got to at least check yourself on your own modern assumptions and social practices cultural practices and mores because this is a completely different culture and though we are descended from them we are not them though there are similarities to us we're still very different as as a culture and we've got to try and remove those filters when we look at the past to really truly understand it and it goes with the hairdressing absolutely so yeah Abby, that was fantastic. So fascinating. Hair. <laughs> um, so fascinating. Yeah. And and then of course we have another episode to mm-hmm. follow up this one. About the trends and stuff. Yeah. The, the trends, um, hairstyling in different decades and the cushions and whatnot yeah. that we're used to making. Spoiler these things. alert, it's gonna focus honestly, probably from the late seventeen sixties up through the turn of the century. We're Everybody's p- favorite period. Yeah, we're probably not going to touch too much on, on earlier. I can touch a little bit on the tête de mouton, but it's not really my my bag of pomade. So, <laughs> bag of pomade. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this has been uh, Fashion History with American Duchess. Woo-hoo. I am Lauren. And I am Abby. And we are coming to you from Reno, Nevada. But on the internet, we live at www.americanduchess.com. If you have questions, you can send them to info at americanduchess.com. Mm-hmm. Connect with us on Facebook or Instagram. Twitter. And Twitter and, and Pinterest and yes. basically everywhere. <laughs> and we also will have a blog post to uh, coincide with this episode at blog.americanduchess.com. Thank you for listening. Until next time, we are signing off. And don't forget to subscribe if you really enjoy listening to us. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.